Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we continue to fill in that map of the world in Anna's brain as we head way, way, way south to the region of Patagonia. Yes, overpriced fleece jackets for everyone. The vest of the 1%. But (laughs) no, we're we're diving in more deeply than the first Google hint. Ah, hit. (laughs) First Google hit. Ahem. Have you tried searching for? That's a Google hint. (laughs) Passive aggressive Google. Oh, terrible. Uh, No. Patagonia is the region that encompasses the southernmost part of the South American continent. It's currently governed by Argentina, although much of what we'll be talking about today occurred long before that polity existed like at all. A lot of times you'll see Tierra del Fuego included in Patagonia, and that territory is split between Argentina and Chile. So if you picture South America, you doing it? I'm doing it. Okay. Uh, Patagonia is at the tip, extending upwards to the Colorado River in the north with the Andes Mountains to the west. The rest surrounded by ocean. Yeah, it's the, the there part of s- South America that looks like a chicken tender. Oh, yep. And yep. familiar. <laughs> uh, there are purported origin stories for the name of the region. One is that 16th century explorers called the Tehuelche, a local indigenous group, Patagones. The other is that it was named by Ferdinand Magellan after Patagon, a dog-headed monster in the 16th century romance, Amadis of Gaul. One might also see have seen that Patagones means giants. And so Patagonia is land of giants. Um, either way, it seems like that name, Patagonia, came about first in the 16th century. Mm-hmm. And as an environment, Patagonia is pretty harsh. It's a steppe environment with desert or semi-desert levels of aridity. But that sounds nice right about now. It's so, it's so humid here. The steppes rise up to around 5,000 feet in altitude, so you could say that Patagonia exemplifies the phrase high and dry. At least you could if that mm-hmm. phrase weren't referring specifically to boats. But Tough climate conditions have never stopped Homo sapiens from living somewhere, and this region is no exception. So we'll start at the beginning, at least where archaeologists and anthropologists are concerned. When and how did people get to Patagonia? Turns out it's complicated. Oh. Surprising no one, I think, probably, by now. <laughs> one day on this podcast, we're going to be like, oh, no, yeah, it was the simple answer. And everyone's going to go, What? Humans got to what is now known as the Americas by around 14,500 years ago. At least that's the date of the earliest known archaeological traces in Chile's Los Lagos region. That said, I found a paper from 2016 published in the journal Quaternary International that applied statistical methods to available radiocarbon dates and molecular data. That's quoting from the paper. In this case, molecular data means mitochondrial DNA haplotype analysis. Oh, I know what that is now. Yeah, we've talked about that. 
but basically it's, you know, tracing genetic lineages through mitochondrial DNA, which is typically passed down the maternal line. So it's not affected by mitosis and meiosis. And so it's, um, you can track genetic mutations that let you track family lines. That paper suggests that population of Patagonia occurred as early as 17,000 years ago. And so quoting from the abstract of that article, the authors say, quote, the archaeological evidence most widely accepted suggests that people spread into the region from the northwest of South America by around 14,000 years ago, probably following the Pacific coast. There is increasing genetic data from modern and ancient mtDNA and Y chromosome supporting that the early populations that inhabited the region descended from Asian groups. This evidence also points out that early populations probably gave rise to late Holocene and historic populations, suggesting a local biological evolution of Patagonian groups, end quote. So to translate... <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. So to translate, it seems like whenever people did get to Patagonia, they stayed and the early populations evolved gradually into the local indigenous groups. And these include the Tuelche, Mapuche, Wiliche, Coescar, Yagan, Selknam, and Hausch, among others. Just over 500 years ago in 1520, it's both so long ago and yet not. Yeah, seriously. Especially when we're looking at 14... And a half thousand years ago to 17,000 years yeah. ago. Yeah. It's like a little eye blink. Long? Yeah. So just over 500 years ago in 1520, Ferdinand Magellan landed in Patagonia as part of his voyage to circumnavigate the globe. Now the voyage ended up getting around the world, but Magellan did not. He died in the Philippines. So I'm going to quote a few short excerpts from a 2020 CE piece on the conversation by Geraldine Loblin and Mariela Eva Rodriguez titled... 500 years after Ferdinand Magellan landed in Patagonia, there's nothing to celebrate for its indigenous peoples. It gives a concise version of the post-contact history. With its allegedly colossal inhabitants and unexplored riches, Patagonia captured the European imagination. Magellan's first journey led other European explorers to try and reach the Pacific via the route henceforth known as the Strait of Magellan. European place names cropped up on European maps as white explorers discovered new places. Indigenous peoples were progressively chased from their territories across the region. The process intensified after Argentina and Chile gained independence from Spain in the first decades of the 19th century. While Patagonia was meant to be under their jurisdiction, in reality, the local indigenous groups retained control of the region. But this changed from the 19th, from the late 19th century onwards under aggressive state land grabs. Chile's pacification of Araucania from 1861 to 1883 and Argentina's conquest of the desert from 1879 to 1885 pushed the internal frontier southward. The euphemistic names of these military campaigns cynically masked their violence. And the goal to open up the land for ranching and settlement by white settlers, preferably from Europe. Um, and if you will remember back to, um, a spooktober of two years ago, um, our, it was episode 65, South American horror story. Oh yeah. Um, we talked about something very related to this, of uh, sort of the, the conquest of the Mapuche on the island of Chiloé, uh, on the other side of the continent there in mm -hmm. Chile. And so... The following pattern, familiar patterns of genocide and displacement to reservations followed. These, these pushes from the um, 
colonial administrations. Mm. Um, and so back to that article from the conversation. In the 1980s, indigenous peoples in Patagonia were officially pronounced extinct with the exception of the Mapuche. Their survival gave rise to widespread accusations that they were not authentic indigenous peoples, something that the Mapuche challenged. And also, like, um, how dare you? And which, yeah. <laughs> Just like, like the fact that you survived means that you means don't. that you couldn't possibly be indigenous because right. we stamped out the indigenous people therefore you exist you must not be Ugh. that's like some like twisted aristotelian logic Ugh. Argentina and Chile have both ratified the International Labor Labor Organization's Indigenous and Tribal Peoples Convention and voted in favor (laughs) and voted in favor of the UN's declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples. But but implementation is a different matter. So in the show notes, we'll have a link to the Smithsonian Museum of the American Indian collections of indigenous art and other materials. So um, as much as I love visiting that museum. It's tough. We, we have to talk about how, how stuff gets there. And that stuff was acquired in the 1920s by archaeologist Samuel K. Lothrop. So um, I'm just going to quote the museum page, the, Ameri- the Museum of the American Indian, and we'll just sit with it for a minute before moving on to some other archaeology, which is what I like to do when I go to the Museum of the American Indian, is just read stuff and Sit with it. The museum expedition to Tierra del Fuego had for its primary purpose the formation of a collection representing the material culture of the Selknam and Yamana Indians before those tribes should become extinct. Hmm. You know, it's a it's preventative. Yeah. Prophylactic expedition. Yeah. Traveling to indigenous lands and communities at the southern tip of South America, Lothrop assembled and shipped to New York ceremonial masks, hunting and fishing equipment, tools, containers, horse equipment, and other items shown here. (laughs) We'll have the link. Yeah. Um, Lothrop remembered George Haya. George Hay. Lothrop remembered George Hay, who funded the expedition and the museum as a as, quote, a strong-willed character who liked to do things his own way, end quote, including the occasional use of guesswork to identify objects. Consequently, Lothrop observed, information about the museum's collections was sometimes inaccurately recorded, an issue the staff of the National Museum of the American Indian addresses today in consultation with Native peoples. Even so, Lothrop credited Hay with amassing an exceptional collection and for creating a museum to display it. Yep. Oh. I guess like credit where credit's due. He got a bunch of stuff and he had a place to put it. Good job, George. Well, let's move on, huh? First on this extremely not chronologically ordered sampler of archaeological projects is a throwback to a very early episode of The Dirt when we interviewed the formidable Dr. Alice Beck Kehoe, and she told us how she first got interested in archaeology. Amber, do you remember her story? I sure do. Uh, It's a relatable one. Um, She was um, a teen girl and she uh, was given permission by her family to go into the city to the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. Yep. And um, she went to a lecture and the person giving the lecture was a stone cold fox. And she and so um, he was he gave his lecture and he played a video. And uh, in the, the film, it was like he and his wife were like doing like ethnography or something or like excavations. And she was just like, 
oh my God, I could have it all. I could have a hottie and adventure and learn about the past and other cultures. This is what I want. (laughs) And up, up they did sign her. And she's like, she's had an amazing career. Yeah, she's and it's eminent. So <laughs> it's great. Just great. It's just so, so great. It's just, it makes it seem very accessible. The field is more accessible when you realize it's just like full of like thirsty teens that grow up to be. <laughs> oh, what are we all but grown up thirsty <laughs> teens? Uh, well, when I was researching this episode, I came across a single line from an obscure book review, at least. I think it's obscure. I don't know. Maybe it's not. By the University of Iowa Press. That made me squawk. Like I I let out an ungodly noise at my computer. Because it turns out the Junius Bird, the object of Dr. Kehoe's... That's why they call him that. What? Oh, Junius Bird. Because he makes the ladies squawk. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in any case, the object of Dr. Kehoe's early awakenings uh, excavated in Patagonia. So thanks to TDAR, the Digital Archaeological Record, and the American Museum of Natural History, I can tell you a bit about those excavations. Sort of. A little bit. This part comes from authors Flavia Morella Repetto, Marta Alfonso Duruti, Tom Amorosi, Victor Sierpe, and Manuel J. San Roman, and is titled Junius Bird Collections from Sites Rock Shelter 1, 2, and 3, parentheses, Beagle Channel, Patagonia, Chile, and parentheses. So it's a description of a catalog of artifacts, but also a description of the project that unearthed them. And so to give us some context, quote, between 1933 and 1980, just let that sink in, Junius Bird, researcher from the American Museum of Natural History in New York, traveled through southern Chile, where he carried out a wide array of archaeological excavations and studies. Towards the beginning of this period, Bird conducted extensive excavations in three sites in the southernmost region of Fuego, Patagonia. Collections from these sites are currently housed at the Division of Anthropology at the American Museum of Natural History and were recently analyzed. And this was as part of a a big grant because the the museum has so many things in its collection that are just hanging out. Um, And so that was that quote from the collection description. And then from the Museum of Natural History's webpage, quote, Junius Bird's contribution to South American archaeology began with his 1932-33 expedition to Tierra del Fuego, southern Chile, where he surveyed the north shore of Navarino Island and excavated at the site of Puerto Pescado. Fish port. Fisherman's port. Fishing. He continued his... That'll come up, actually. Fishing's very important. He continued his South Chile research in 1934 through 37, surveying archaeological sites in the Western Channels and excavating along the north shore of the Straits of Magellan at, at Paiaike and Fell's Cave. Possibly Paiaike. At these two early cave sites, Bird discovered human artifacts in clear association with bones of extinct horses and sloths, establishing the presence of human populations in South America at around 9000 BCE. Bird's findings became an important contribution to the study of early human populations in the Americas, and the artifacts he brought back from Paliaike and Fell's Caves are among the most important in our archaeological collections from South America. 
that ends the quote from the Natural History Museum. And then Byrd's own 1938 publication quoted Darwin's account from his voyage to the same region. So Darwin, Charles Darwin, um, explored Patagonia when he was on the Beagle. They went kind of uh, through the Straits of Magellan around Patagonia. And so he spent a lot of time uh, kind of just sort of doing what Darwin did, which was collecting lots and lots of samples and thinking and writing. And so in that introduction to that part of his writings, Darwin basically wonders what could have possessed people to want to live in a place like this. And Bird, in again, in his publication in 1938, agrees that the environment is worth considering, but then goes on to say, quote, I wish to emphasize the fact that Patagonia is by no means the bleak, forbidding country of popular conception. Its bad reputation dates from the days of sailing vessels, when conditions offshore were thought to be indicative of the nature of the land. And since then, too many writers have carried on the old tradition. Even the primitive state of the natives has been attributed to the climate, but men have lived successfully under worse and severer conditions without stagnating or degenerating, end quote. I have mixed feelings well, about that paragraph. Well, he had a, he had us in the first half. Yeah, great start. Lost me at the end. Mm-hmm. So Bird's excavations revealed that this area had been home to two different populations, an older one and a newer one, recognizable by the different types of materials they left behind. Hunting weapons from the earlier group were primarily bolas, which are weights that are connected by a cord and you whip them around your head and you throw them at prey. And depending, they can be different sizes depending on what kind of prey you're targeting. It can be birds or land animals, but in general, you're trying to tangle them up so that they can't move and you can get to them. Um, So, you know, you, you aim for the legs or the wings. Oh, that's, that's cool. It is cool. Yeah. And requires, as you might imagine, a lot of skill and aim. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I should. I should uh, clarify my stance. That's that sounds kind of like awful, but very effective. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. A very like effective way to with sort of like limited use of resources. Like you're not like sitting down and just like hammering out a yeah, stone you're not point that building you might an elaborate trap something. or anything. Yeah. 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 Um, and then the later group used bows and arrows primarily rather than bolas. The article then goes on to summarize the finds at each of the sites that Bird excavated. It talks about the dating and stratigraphy and then does a nice job of correlating the sites with one another stratigraphically to try to work out a picture of when people started living in Patagonia and how different populations moved around and occupied different spaces with different technologies and approaches to resources. So it's really just a very solid standard archaeological article. I give it Eight out of ten. Docking, right. docking two points for that introduction. <laughs> Minus two for racism. Nah. Um, so we'll have it linked in the show notes, listeners. Don't you worry. So that you can read it and rate it for yourselves, if you like. Um, but let's move on to some other archaeology after a quick ad break. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Culturomedia.com. 
Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Hey, hey, Anna. Hey. Hey, remember when I wrote that whole Spooktober episode just about hands? I do. Remember that bit that became an entire episode? I do. It was just last year. Um, oh, gosh, was it? Yeah. Um, this site is kind of like that. It's La Cueva de las Manos, the cave of hands. <laughs> um, there's actually a lot of other things in there apart from hands, but come on, cave of hands. Yeah, I mean, honestly, there was a lot going on in that hands episode other than hands, but <laughs> it's true. There hands. No spoilers for the hands episode. Yeah. Um so it's not only a cave of hands, it's also a cave of heritage. Uh, the cave is a UNESCO World Heritage Site since 99 CE. Well, 1999 CE, if I'm going to say it like that. Conserve like it's 1999. Huh. And much of what I'm going to tell you about it comes from a UNESCO website, as well as from a piece on Atlas Obscuro. Cueva de las Manos contains an exceptional assemblage of cave art with many painted rock shelters, including a cave. Well, a rock shelter is different from a cave. Why not? But it's called the Cave of Hands. Yes. Good thing they brought one. Yeah. No, that's good. Uh, The whole system is in a deep canyon cut into the rock over millennia by the Rio Pinturas, the Painted River. And so I guess like the the paintings are kind of like the vibe of the place. Yep. (laughs) You might say Uh, colors the... Uh, interpretation uh-huh. of the, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. the name comes from the stenciled outlines of human hands in the cave hands mm. uh, but there are also many depictions of animals such as guanacos uh, still commonly found in the region as well as hunting scenes that depict animals and human figures interacting in a dynamic and naturalistic manner <laughs> the entrance to the cueva is screened by a rock wall covered by many hand stencils Within the rock shelter itself, there are five concentrations of rock art, later figures and motifs often superimposed upon those from earlier periods. So it's like uh, one of those bulletin boards on a college campus. Yeah, very much. Uh, The paintings were executed with natural mineral pigments and shades of red and purple, black, yellow, and white. The authenticity of the rock art of the Cueva de las Manos is unquestionable. It has survived several millennia untouched and no restoration has been carried out since it became widely known to the scientific community in the 1950s. Archaeological excavations of the cave and rock shelters have been very restricted uh, to try to piece together as much cultural information as possible to get reliable dates for the art with minimal disturbance to archaeological layers or to the appearance of the rock shelter. Um, scientific excavations have made it possible to relate the cave depictions located in the site to the communities living in the region since the 10th millennium before present. It's old. Uh, the art sequence of the Cueva de las Manos is based on a detailed study of overlapping the different 
use of hues, its various states of conservation, and the location of the depictions along defined, different defined sectors. Its relation to the various cultural levels of the site is also supported by carbon dating. Mm-hmm. These elements, along with research evidence and interdisciplinary analyses, strongly support the authenticity of Cueva de los Manos as a unique example of one of the earliest hunter-gatherer communities living in the South American region in the early Holocene. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, it's a very, very cool, cool. Yeah. And so if you do a quick Google search for Cueva de los Manos, you can see some of the images of the paintings. Oh, yeah, it's a really famous image, the hands it's on the a, wall. It's very famous. Yeah. That's where that is from. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. If you see it, you might just do what Amber did. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh. So I think it's only right and fair that I provide some symmetry to a cave full of hands by moving to a discussion of old, old, cave old feet. feet. Not in a cave. Yes. Just really old. Making cave very mountain old. of feet. Oh, God. I'm trying to think of the opposite. Yeah, cave of hands, mountain of feet, river of torsos. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so making old, old footprints, another recurring callback to an early episode. Uh, and also a smidgen of my favorite game, Translate That Science. Yes. We're headed to what is now the city of Osorno in the southern part of Chile. In the 1980s, when local developers began doing a bunch of digging to build new houses, as developers do, they started uncovering a lot of prehistoric remains and eventually alerted scientists to the richness of material in that area. At like the 15th shovel full of mammoth, they went, um, not mammoth, mastodon. Research has been ongoing there since 1986. That's as long as me. And has uncovered the remains of large animals ranging from mastodons to horses to a paleo-llama, a larger species of llama that is now extinct. And now, quick sidebar for paleo-llamas, except probably paleo-llamas is correct. This is a a genus of animal called macrocania, or possibly chania, but since it's Coming from the Greek, I'm going to go with Cania. Macrocania fossils were first collected in February 1834 at Port St. Julian in Patagonia by Charles Darwin. Heard of him. When the HMS Beagle was surveying the port. As a non-expert, and I cannot stress enough how non-expert he was at identifying animals, he tentatively identified the leg bones and fragments of spine he found as, quote, some large animal, I fancy a mastodon, end quote. I mean, oh. he was great with barnacles, great I, with earthworms. I, I fancy another cup of coffee. Mm. Some people fancy a mastodon. Mm. Or possibly a fancy mastodon. A little top hat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he festooned that mastodon. Yeah. In 1837, soon after the Beagles returned, the anatomist and just deeply bleak individual Richard Owen identified the bones, including vertebrae from the back and neck, as from a gigantic creature resembling a llama or camel, which Owen named Macrocania pataconica. In naming it, Owen noted the original Greek terms macros, large or long, and alken, or neck. Okay. Okay. Sorry. No, thank you. Keeping me honest, re-accent marks. Macrocania had a somewhat camel-like body with sturdy legs, a long neck, and a relatively small head. 
in profile. It's kind what of a rude description. <laughs> it, it's sort of like a tapir. Like if you see it in okay. profile, it's a little tapir looking. Its feet, however, more closely resembled those of a modern rhinoceros with one central toe and two side toes on each foot. It was a large animal with a body length of around 3 meters, or 9.8 feet, and a weight up to 1,042.8 kilograms. <laughs> very, very specific. Uh, about the size of a black rhinoceros. Quite large, considering it's the next closest thing to a llama. The snout of Macrocania is completely enclosed by bone, and the animal has an elongated neck that allowed it to reach upward. No living mammal with a proboscis has these features. So it's typically they have a bony snout. Yeah. So they, animals that have sort of very mobile lips, these like, think of cows and horses there. I am. I often do. Yeah. So they're where their like upper and lower lips would be. There's not. There's a jawbone, but at, at the top, there's not really bone. Just sort yeah, of there's just like trails off after the nose bones. Yeah. And so um, an alternative hypothesis is that uh, these macrocania and animals like them were high browsers on tough and thorny vegetation. And so the retracted, the nostrils were sort of back up the snoot and that allowed them to reach leaves without being impaled in the nose. Um it's re- the reconstructions of sauropod dinosaurs, which are often mm-hmm. thought to have munched on conifers and other spiky trees and plants. Yeah, cycads. Like, I've got one. It's pokey. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. So if you wanted to poke your snoot in there, you'd want a little protection. Oh, definitely. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, this has been your paleolama update. Let's move on to that oh, footprint. Thanks. I feel so edified. Yeah. The most exciting find for anthropologists rather than llamaologists was an example of an ichnite, which is a great mm. word. Do you know what an ichnite is, Amber? <laughs> don't no. Don't strain too hard. It's a fossilized <laughs> footprint. It's okay. It's just it's a fossilized <laughs> footprint. It's a cool word for a cool thing. So I'm going to quote the abstract of the original article, which was published in PLOS One, and then we'll translate. Never fear. <clears throat> The present study describes the discovery of a singular sedimentary structure corresponding to an ichnite that was excavated at the paleoarchaeological site Pilaco, Osorno, Chile. The trace fossil is associated with megafauna bones, plant material, and unifacial lithic tools. Here we present a detailed analysis of the Pilauco ichnite and associated sedimentary structures, as well as new radiocarbon data. The ichnological analysis confidently assigns the trace to the ichno species Hominipes modernus, a hominoid footprint usually related to Homo sapiens. Yes. I think I'm putting it together. Okay, great. I think I'm putting it together. Some with context clues. Great, 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 like great, great. Classical education. Wow. Okay. I can't really wait for this translation. Some particular characteristics of the Palauco trace include an elongated distal hallux, lateral digit impressions obliterated by the collapsed sediment, and sediment lumps. Couldn't find another mm. term except lumps. Inside and around the trace. In order to evaluate the origin of the ichnite, track-making experiments are performed on rehydrated fossil bed sediments. The results demonstrate that a human agent could easily generate a footprint morphology equivalent to the sedimentary structure when walking on a saturated substrate. <laughs> All right. Translation? Oh, man. Oh, man. I, can I guess? Yeah. 
Okay, so Ichnospecies hominipes modernus is just like the foot, the like the foot shape it's of the footprint a like, type. modern yeah. human human foot. Mm-hmm. Well, Ichnospecies oh is the is related specifically to the trace left behind. So it's okay. not the foot of a human; it's the footprint footprint of a human. Oh my yeah. gosh, this is <laughs> it's some it specific terminology. Okay, so Ichnospecies, so the footprint. This footprint is called Hominopes modernus. That's its name. Modern human foot. Yep. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Shall I translate? Come on. Yes, please. Yeah. So we've what we've got here is a footprint and the taxonomy <laughs> of a footprint. The authors specifically categorize the trace as Hominopes modernus, or as you said exactly, Amber, modern human foot. <laughs> Told you my classical education came through. Mm-hmm. This particular <laughs> footprint is distinguished by a long, big toe. That's the elongated <laughs> distal hallux. Your hallux is your big toe. Uh, although the prints from the outside toes are obscured because some of the sediment slumped. There are also some lumps, didn't have to translate that, of dirt inside the footprint itself. Kind of dropped there after the foot lifted. So the researchers did some experiments to make sure that this shape really did most likely come from a human foot. And they tested various types and wetnesses of sediment. So they like took some loose dirt from that same place, the fossil uh, bed where it was found, hydrating it different ways, making it wetter or less wet. And it seems like the most likely scenario is that the trace was left in a, quote, saturated substrate, also known as mud. This is amazing. The tests involved walking through similar sediment to see what kind of tracks got left behind. And these experiments revealed that the ancient human likely weighed around 155 pounds, 70 kilograms, and the soil was quite wet and sticky when the print was made. And the lumps come in here because it appears that a clump of the sticky dirt clung to the person's toes and then fell into the print when the foot was lifted. So it's this kind of like dynamic trace of someone walking in sticky mud. The researchers used radiocarbon dating to test six different organic samples associated with the same layer the footprint was found in, so the dates are pretty secure, and the footprint dates to 15,600 years ago, well before the people associated with Clovis technology. We mentioned them before, we've never really done a full Clovis episode, but these were the people who were, yet, who were originally thought to have been the first to populate the Americas. That's now been pretty thoroughly um, altered. Monte Verde, an archaeological site around 60 miles from Pilaco, has artifacts that are around 14,500 years old. So it would seem that people moved around in this area for for quite a while, um, leaving little footprints. So now that we've got hands and feet accounted for, let's take one more quick ad break and then wrap up with one more little bit of Patagonian archaeology. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our T Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. 
Check out the high-quality T-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and TeePublic often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. Our last piece of research for this episode brings things nicely full circle. We started off by discussing Patagonia's challenging environment, which was not too challenging for Junius Bird. But not being a racist Man. was. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Whoops. Mm, product of the time. No, you could not You could not be racist yeah, I at know. that time. Yep. Just, I just want to make sure that that is reinforced here. A product of... Uh, also people have decisions. always had the opportunity to not be racist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that p- the people that made their homes here would have needed to be highly adaptable. So here's an archaeological example that shows exactly this type of behavioral flexibility. The original study was published in the Journal of Island and Coastal Archaeology. You love to see it. Loika. Uh, but we're excerpting here from a press release about the study by Asta Upredi from the Columbia for the Columbia Climate School. Uh, New research has uncovered how an ancient human population adapted effectively to climate change, offering insights that are useful for the environmental challenges of today. The recent study examines the fishing patterns of prehistoric hunter-gatherers in Patagonia, a region at the southern tip of South America. Archaeologists used fish remains to piece together thousands of years of history in the region, obtaining a fuller picture of the area's prehistoric societies and how they interacted with and transformed their natural surroundings. All from fish. Amazing. A team of Chilean and French archaeologists examined the bones of tadpole codling. (laughs) And I've included a picture of one if you scroll down. So it's not just going, oh, it's okay. I'll take care of that. Oh, no, it's not codling a tadpole. It's a tadpole (laughs) codling, which is not, I think. A little cod? I don't think it's a diminutive. Well, it could be diminutive of cod. But there is also a fish called a ling. And it that is a type of cod? What? Like they got married and this is their child? Yeah, maybe it's a double Tadpole barrel. codling. Yeah. <laughs> the double barrel. The parents singing. are delighted to announce the arrival of tadpole <laughs> to codling. To Mr. and Mrs. Codling, a tadpole. <laughs> oh, okay. precious. It's a native fish. Baby. <laughs> to determine the seasonal fishing habits of the area's ancient societies. Tadpole codling live on the rocky continental shelves along southern Patagonia's coastline in the Straits of Magellan, a channel that connects the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Along with fishing artifacts, tadpole codling remains are abundant throughout the region, indicating that they were a common food source for prehistoric peoples. The fish just have the goofiest looks. Yeah, this fish looks like it's, you, you just, oh. it just walked in on something really embarrassing. It's like, <laughs> oh, ah. Uh. <laughs> Oh. And like knocked over a lamp trying to leave. <laughs> um, fishing was one of the ways prehistoric Patagonians adapted to the fruits of their environment. Fish fruit. <laughs> oh, fruits de mer. Frito de mare. No. Oh, fruto. I messed yeah. that up. Fruto <laughs> de mare. Said, yeah, it's like a, the, the fries. <laughs> Of the sea. I was thinking frito misto, which is often seafood. I'm hungry. (laughs) (laughs) The waters surrounding the southern tip of South America are highly productive. Must be nice. And abundant with fish and marine life. This is thanks to Antarctic Ocean currents and upwelling. 
a phenomenon where cool, nutrient-rich waters replace warmer surface waters along the coast. I was writing this the other day, sweating and just thinking like, oh, that sounds nice. <laughs> Must be nice. <laughs> Must be nice. Uh, the researchers used a technique that is similar to the study of tree rings, uh, dendrochronology, to examine the fish bones. <laughs> This technique involves looking at annual growth rings and hard tissue such as bones, teeth, and inner ear bones to reveal information about an organism's age and life history. So you'll see there that I've written otoliths in all caps, exclamation point. I've heard a lot about those. My great aunt is having some vertigo issues. So I've been hearing about otoliths. Oh, well, well, if you're, no, you know, I was going to say if your aunt were a cod, but uh, it doesn't end up well for the cut. So, so I'm going to um, change, change my, my, my tune. Um, fish. So we all have ear bones. Um, yep. You have little bones in your inner ear that help with balance and hearing, etc. Lots of animals have these bones. Fish have really, really specifically um, generated otoliths, which is to say that they are built over the course of the fish's entire life. So little layers. um, Yes. Sorry. Back up. Fish have ears. They do. They have sensory organs. Like they don't have outer, (laughs) they don't have like Dumbo ears. (laughs) So fish Fish have have, ear holes. Fish have the ability to perceive vibrations and sound. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And they, I don't know to what extent I'm not a fish person. I'm not a (laughs) CR episode fish people, but um, no, I just, I I don't know if they have an external opening, but I know that they have questions, but I know that they have the ability to perceive sound waves in their skull. Wow. If you are a fish person, write in the dirt podcast at gmail.com. Let us know. What are those fish ears like? They do. So otoliths are. If, if a tree falls on the ocean, can a fish hear it? <laughs> uh, profound, benthic. Okay. <laughs> Stop laughing. People hate that. So otoliths are created gradually over the course of a fish's life, so much so that uh, basically there are daily deposits onto the otolith. And so, unfortunately, the fish has to die for you to do this. But if you catch a fish, and cut out its otolith, you can then bisect it and count the little rings. And you can basically find out how old that fish was to the day, which is wild and great. So the date, uh, the dating information that can come from fish otoliths is very specific and precise, which is good. The archaeological samples from this study come from a range of thousands of years. Down to the day. The bones that dated back to various points throughout the middle and late Holocene and suggest that the hunter-gatherers who caught the fish likely lived between approximately 5,500 and 1,000 BCE. The hunter-gatherers of Patagonia and Tierra del Fuego in the middle and late Holocene comprised various groups of people, including the Yahan and the Kawaiskar, Kawaiskar, who were fishermen, and Selknam, who relied more on land animals like the Wanaco. Which I don't know what that is. What is that? It's, it's a, a uh, we covered that when you were talking about the cave of hands. There are some paintings of them. It's kind of like a, it's a deer. It's a type of deer. Okay. Yeah. No, we mentioned them and I just pretended that I knew. And now I'm like, oh, I'm into uh, deer. Okay. Okay. It's a deer that's been to Quantico. Oh, little, little FBI graduate deer. <laughs> Whoa. Hootie who. 
This deer carries a gun. Those who were maritime nomads traveled by canoe and had extensive knowledge of how to navigate the complex fjords and wider ways of the region. They used tools like harpoons to hunt various types of fish, seabirds, such as cormorants and albatross, and marine mammals, like seals. Thank you. The team analyzed from a total of four sites throughout the area and found that the inhabitants' fishing patterns varied, suggesting year-round harvest with an emphasis on the colder or warmer season from place to place. The seasonality of these ancient people's fishing practices was also supported by the discovery of other animal bones in the middens. For example, in one heap, the team found the remains of young seabirds, which would only have been present during warm months, further indicating that this particular site was probably used during summer. Mm-hmm. So um, you see this a lot with hunter-gatherer groups who lived in, who live in a mixed environment where there are marine and land resources. Um, this is especially true in the Arctic. But seasonal hunting happens in both environments. So um, these are people that are highly aware of the life patterns of the species in their landscape and knew when different resources would be most available to them. And also like when... Um, is not a great time to be hunting. Yeah. And so they would have seasonal camps. And so the whole group would be sort of roughly sedentary, but in a few places at once. Yeah. Not at once. Yeah. Like you don't want to have, you don't want to have your camp at a place where everything is just like having its babies because if you eat them then, well, well, that does happen in some cases. They specifically go to places where like seabirds are roosting so they can easily access the young. Um, but there does seem to be some indication that in you know periods when this happened, uh, the populations suffered, both bird yes, and human. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh. uh. um. So this research is really important because it shows what happens to the various species that were exploited over long periods of fluctuating climate and different densities of human populations. So fishing is important to the people of Chile today, as it was thousands of years ago when it wasn't Chile, but it's under threat from climate change and over-exploitation. Additionally, um, Patagonia's glaciers are melting at a, frankly, alarming rate, affecting the temperature and salinity of the local seawater. So by looking at patterns from the past, we can see how populations cycled and bounced back and try to gain insights into how to correct for the threats to Chile's marine resources now so they can bounce back in the future. Science! Saving the fishies. That is going to do it for us this week. We will be back in your ears soon, though, with new episodes. But if you miss us, in the meantime, you can find our whole back catalog on our website, thedirtpod.com. You can also find our merch there, as well as our syllabus for educators, links to sponsor an episode, a really cool map that I really need to update, and so much more. You can also find us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast, on Twitter at Dirt Podcast, and on Instagram at The Dirt Pod. Go find us on there. We're fun. Go find us. Yeah. Go find us. We're all right. All right. Make the occasional good joke. Arguably. Well, thanks, everybody. We love you. Bye. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.